0: the false will of a should, or a striving, or, um, you know, you should do better, or whatever it is, or a commandment, but a really, c- coming from a really clear place of, this is a resolve I'm making, so that it's clear and strong and in alignment. It's without aversion or without greed, either one. It's without hindrance. So the first one, renunciation, is really about taking responsibility for our desire. It's coming to a wise relationship with them so that they don't run the show. It's not about trying to get rid of them or um, judge ourselves for having them, but coming to wise relationship to notice the intentional actions that they motivate. Some desires are very skillful. They're for our liberation, for helping others, for our own health, well-being. And some desires are obviously unskillful, whether it's individual or institutional greed. It's kind of the big thing in North America, institutional greed. And so we can really explore and pay attention to that. And as I said, the Buddha doesn't suggest getting rid of it by aversion, or by repression, or by fear, but by understanding what it feels like, exploring mindfully, as we have done, so that we notice what seeds we're watering. Are we watering the seeds of greed? Or are we watering the seeds of aversion and trying to get rid of it? And just about being honest with ourselves. You know, I have the intention to be generous in my life, and I like to think of myself and think that my friends think of me as a generous person, but I also know when I open the box of cookies at home, I find my hand moving towards the largest one with the most chocolate chips, (laughs) or perhaps the least burnt one. And so it's just interesting to notice that movement. And then I notice that other members of my family are doing the same thing. (laughs) So that by the end of the week, there's one small (laughs) chocolate-chipless cookie. And so it's about having humor about it, but noticing. We can have an idea or an intention, but this kind of animal greed comes in there. That motivation, the biggest for me and for mine. So it's just about being honest about our motivation. And then there are inner renunciations of our views and our opinions and our mind states, judgments, certain things. We can see how we might have a tendency to be judgmental. That's our particular viewpoint. Um, One of us was quoting Yvonne Rand the other night, and she has another quote that I really love. She's talking about how... um, our um, self-denigration is really actually enhancing self. It's a self-referencing just as much as um, you know having pride would be. And so the example she gives is just we're seeing ourselves as the little piece of shit that's the center of the universe. <laughs> and so <laughs> sometimes when I'm on retreat I'll make the intention to renounce indulging in self-judgment. Because it's still selfing. But I'll make the, okay, I'm going to renounce self-judging and renounce growing forests of inadequacy. And I'll also, while I'm at it, renounce whining. (laughs) Because sometimes we can get into that. And it's really not very helpful, whining and complaining about conditions. There's a book called, I think it's called The Chocolate Cake Sutra. Maybe some of you have read it. And the the author describes how she noticed how she and her teenage daughter were always whining and complaining. And it was really getting to be very irritating. And so she decided that they would renounce whining. But it didn't work. You know, they'd do it for a day, and then sooner or later they'd be whining, she said, to beat the band again. And so what she decided to do was that repression of whining wasn't working. So she instituted, between five and six was whining hour. <laughs> and all they were allowed to do between five and six was whine. <laughs> but what, what what she found in doing that was there's a way it just got released. And then the freedom from not whining was so amazing. They began to see what was positive and wonderful in their lives, rather than this focusing on what was wrong. And it actually cured the whining. And so whenever it started to come back, back again, they would reinstitute whining hour. And so it's not about repressing, but about finding a skillful relationship with these difficult habit patterns. But making the intention that we're going to abstain or refrain from getting caught in them. So renunciation is really about letting go. It's about choosing to relinquish habit patterns that we know are leading to suffering. So it's actually renunciation is being kind to ourselves. The next intention, skillful intention, is the intention of goodwill. That wholehearted intention to be present for ourselves with kindness with unconditional friendliness, friendliness to all of our experience without exception. And all of the Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, are powerful intention practices. We're intentionally inclining our minds towards well-being for ourselves and all of life. And in the suttas, and in some of the chants that we have, They're powerful resolves. It's, I will abide pervading the whole world in loving-kindness, in compassion, in joy and equanimity. I will abide. I will do this. So metta is not, sometimes people think of it as sentimental and mushy. And it's actually a very strong intention of inclining ourselves towards something that will bring happiness and peace to ourselves and those around us. So not to underestimate the power of inclining our minds in that way. In order to develop unconditional love, we have to water the seeds of loving-kindness practice. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, Spontaneous feelings of goodwill occur too sporadically and are too limited in range to be relied on as a remedy for aversion. So they occur too, too sporadically. The mind can't be commanded to love spontaneously, and we all know that. It just can't, it doesn't happen. So we need to make the intention to keep inclining our mind in that way. And even when it doesn't seem like the little plants are growing, just to keep watering the seeds anyway. Over and over. And to begin with meta to ourselves, because it's only love to others only becomes possible when we can actually feel it when we've taken it in in ourselves, when we can generate loving kindness for ourselves. Most of the anger and hurt that we direct towards others really becomes from negative attitudes we hold towards ourselves or from hurt that we've received, humiliation, pain, lack of respect, thats all gets projected out. If we've been treated with res- disrespect and humiliated, it, unless, until we heal that, it tends to radiate out. So when we do loving-kindness practice, it really shifts the identification. It takes us beyond the separation from between me and them, and open into a more universal experience of love and compassion and joy. We can incline our minds towards happiness intentionally, as we've been saying each day, may I receive the deepest well-being and happiness. We can feel the impact of that as we say it, as we make that intention for others. It's powerful. Everyone wants to be happy and secure, and we can have that intention of goodwill. It's very powerful. And we can also start to watch for those small moments of ill-will just like the small moments of greed get mixed in. And another example, I was at the forest, re- forest refuge um, a year ago, and it, we chanted the metta meta chant every morning, early. And I'd been there for a few weeks, for about three or four weeks. And the chanting in the morning was very sweet and beautiful, and I felt filled with love towards all beings, and I was very happy. And somebody came in and sat next to me, who was new and had just arrived, and started chanting in a very loud voice in a different tune. And <laughs> immediately this sort of ill will <laughs> just, just filled my whole mind, and I realized I was full of ill will towards this poor person. You know, out of tune, shut up, and all this stuff, and I thought, whoa, that didn't take very long to go from <laughs> loving all beings <laughs> to instant ill will. And so just, just, it's the moment-to-moment mindfulness as soon as it didn't take very long to see it and I was able to laugh at it and it passed through. And so we really need to just acknowledge that all the seeds are there for all of us and just to, um, just to pay attention. That's what intention is, and I'll keep saying this. It's moment to moment knowing what our intention is. So then the next one, um, the third of the wise intentions, is the intention to practice harmlessness. As though it, we were saying, may I be free from harm and causing harm. My intention is to be free from harm and to be free from causing harm. May I be harmless to others. And we can have the intention, may all others be harmless towards all others. This deep wish and intention for the ending of suffering. And when our thoughts are guided by compassion in that way, we're naturally opposed to any any cruelty that arises. We notice when it starts to arise in the mind, just as I did. Notice that. And we begin to wish that all beings are free from suffering, no matter what circumstances they might be in. Like with metta, we start to be able to enter into the subjectivity of others and share their world in a meaningful way, in a deep and total way. All beings, like us, want to be free from suffering. So all of the Brahma-viharas are very practical, and these are intention <coughs> practices that we can use in our own lives. They're not theoretical. In the same way the precepts are aligning ourselves with wise intentions. We're undertaking the trainings in all those different ways to refrain from harm. And the refuges are too. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we're aligning ourselves with the refuge of being awake, of being present. It's a powerful intention. Taking refuge in the Dharma, aligning ourselves with what's true, taking refuge in the Sangha, our connection with all beings, we're honoring that. The Metta Sutta, the whole of the Metta Sutta is one long intention. And it contains actually each of those in the wise intentions. And it begins with, This is what should be done. It's that clear. This is what should be done. And it tells us to be humble and not conceited. So that's the renounce. What contented and easily satisfied. And this next one is for me unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. So that's renouncing taking on too many things. <laughs> renouncing busyness. And then it goes on to begin goodwill. Um, May all beings without exception be at ease. Even as a mother protects with her life her only child. And then it goes on And so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. And then the ha- bit about harmlessness. Let none deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Uh, so it's very clear um, instruction about how to develop wise intention. And we're cultivating a kindness that's born out of our intention, so that our motiv- motivation is increasingly about connection rather than alienation and separation. So important thing about all of these is seeing the place where we have a choice. We have more freedom than we think, with intention, and because it's moment to moment, when we're mindful, we see the choice point. The Buddha gave a beautiful teaching to his son Rahula. He said to Rahula, Rahula was about seven or so at the time, there are three ways you should, three times you should consider your action. Before, during, and after. You should consider thus, is what I'm about to do, what I'm already doing, what I've just done, going to be of benefit to me, to all of the others, and to both me and all of the others? And if it is, then he could continue doing it, and if it wasn't, then stop. And he was to consider that for all of his actions. And it's actually a very powerful thing. It's of the level of, will this be harmful? Will this be beneficial? Is it in line with what I believe? Is it in line with my core values, this action? And what are those anyway? What do I really want? What do I deeply value? Is this in line with it? So if we take that apart a little bit, the before requires that we pause. We pause for a moment. Where's this action going to lead? Is it going to lead me in a direction that I want to go? And so you, you can about, are about to speak, and you think about, oh, is this going to have the impact that I want? Is it going to go in a useful direction? So you have a chance. But then suppose you've already started, and you're in the middle of. It's during. The idea of looking at it during acknowledges the electric electrical current concept that it's possible to stop the flow in the middle. And if you can keep the mindfulness continuous, if your mindfulness is being continuous, then you get a chance to notice, is this having the impact I want? And um, is it a being of benefit or is it not? So suppose you're in the middle of... Um, talking about something with some people and you realize oh, this is not having the impact I'm I'm wanting. This person is starting to look like they're really feeling hurt or criticized or whatever. You're aware of that. So it gives you a chance to stop and to pause to notice that. So maybe you're giving advice and they didn't really want advice, they just wanted to be listened to. And you this time notice before the eyes glaze over. <laughs> so there's a possibility of stopping. And then it may be um, that um, so that so just to back up a bit. So then in the emphasis is on on equally on the intention and on the impact, the result. So you're aware of both. <coughs> keeping both in mind your motivation and the result that it's having during. So it's dynamic, and it helps us choose how to modify our action. So then suppose you didn't notice any of that, and now it's all over, and whoever it is has gone off and is upset. (laughs) Or maybe what happened was you were talking about someone in an unskillful way, perhaps gossiping, and you realize, oh, that wasn't a skillful thing to do. Um, I've caused harm." And so you assess it. And this is where what the Buddha's advice to Rahula was really helpful and important. His attitude towards mistake was no blame, no judgment. He simply said, if you've caused suffering to yourself, to the others, or to both, go to a friend or a teacher and talk about it, discuss it with someone resolve not to do it again in the future, to really look more carefully at your attention intention to get help. He did not say, you're bad, you should be ashamed. He, the, the teaching was that guilt is not a useful emotion, that you're shameful is wrong view. Shame is wrong view. When we take responsibility, for the results of our intentional actions, then it's possible to change our behavior. And that's not the same as identifying with our mistakes or blaming ourselves. In terms of cause and effect, when we blame our judge, we're watering the seeds of punishment. And that grows punishing, or the ability to be more punishing in the future. So that's a really useful thing to see. And in so much of our culture, um, is about being punished for our mistakes. I have a friend who's an art therapist, and she works with um, young children who come from homes where they've um, been pretty traumatized. And so she does artwork with them as a process of healing. And she noticed with one particular group of kids that Whenever they made a mistake or their their um, clay sculptures fell apart or something happened, they would cover their work and they would be really ashamed of it and they wouldn't want her to look. So she instituted this um, thing of whenever they made a mistake, they were go they were supposed to say "Hooray, I made a mistake," and they they really liked it. And so one day she was telling them, giving them some instructions and talking about what to do, and she got all her words mixed up. And so all the kids went, hooray, she made a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And she said she realized how moved she was that her whole life she'd been afraid of public speaking. And it just broke like that when she realized she could just laugh at her mistakes. It wasn't personal. Um, And so I encourage you, (laughs) Hooray, I made a mistake. It's very freeing not to take ourselves so seriously. And then it's possible to really look at our intentions closely. We're not as afraid of our own judgments. And we're able to learn in that way. So when we we move in that direction, we're creating a positive kind of karma that will grow seeds of humor, understanding, and compassion. So when you judge yourself, you're sowing more seeds of suffering. So pay attention to how you feel after you realize that you've made a mistake, or done something you regret. Pay attention to how you feel. And practice wise reflection instead of guilt. See what you can learn from the experience when you can reconnect to wise intention. And then you can act with compassion and with understanding. So explore that for yourself. I've found it really makes a big difference. There are two mental factors that can guide our intention. They're called the twin guardians of the world. And in Pali, they're called hiri, an otapam. Hiri really means self-respect. An otapam respect for others. So it's like having an indwelling conscience, if you will, knowing whether our actions are appropriate or not. And it's sort of that social uh, interpersonal empathy. And it's like we reflexly know whether we're about to do something that's inappropriate. There's some kind of uh inside if we're about to say or do something that we know is not skillful. Um, and that's going to harm the well-being of ourselves or someone else. We get visceral clues and mental clues that that's about to happen. And it usually comes in the about-to moment. We're about to do something and there's this uh feeling. And that's hiri and otapa. And it's not about guilt. It's it's human empathy. Um, And it develops in children at a very young age, this ability to be empathetic Um, decisions. So the Buddha was really um, emphasizing that we can have the wisdom and understanding that um, certain actions lead to results, and, for example, people can do things that are harmful. We can do things that are harmful. We're all human, and we're all subject to the laws of cause and effect. We've all done things that we regret, and we've all done things that are beneficial every one of us. And when we have the wisdom and understanding of these laws of cause and effect, then we can still respond to suffering with compassion. And we can see that people do things that are unskillful out of their pain and suffering and have compassion, and first have compassion for ourselves. So it's a useful question to ask ourselves, Where is this action leading? Do I want to go there? And when we understand very deeply, actions lead to results, and that the intention has the power to bring about countless results, then it opens us more fully to respond appropriately to what's happening. And we can accept what is, but not in a passive way. So our responses are from wisdom, rather than reactivity. So I'd just like to talk for a few minutes about the things that block our wise intervention. Because it it does, it gets blocked in a variety of ways. We can get caught up in our busy lives, and we can forget the deep intentions that are really meaningful for us. When we're rushing through our lives, we, we lose connection with that. It's like that Zen story of the there's a man rushing through the, his horses, rushing through the village at a very fast pace, galloping along, and someone yells at him, where are you going? Where are you going? He I don't know, ask the horse. <laughs> and we're, we're moving that fast through our lives that we've forgotten our intentions. We've, we've just gotten caught in the onward movement. And so sometimes we need to pause. Is this in line with what I really value? What are my intentions? We can get caught in distraction. Um, distraction can take the form of desire or of confusion or of self doubt. When I'm writing talks, I get caught in distraction. It might be a book or a chocolate or a Sudoku or. <laughs> any one of a number of things. For my partner, for a while, it was The Sopranos. It was his distraction. And then it was Six Feet Under. (laughs) But then he's in the Dedicated Practitioner Program, and they assign watching an episode of Six Feet Under (laughs) as part of the homework. (laughs) And so he had an excuse for it. And so we can notice, what is it that's (laughs) my distraction that's taking me away? from the intentions that I value. And then sometimes some habit patterns are very hard to change. They're very deeply ingrained. Some habit patterns, the analogy is like if you draw a mark on water, it dissolves very quickly. And those habit patterns are easy to change. Some of them are like drawing a line in sand. It takes a little more determination. And other, others are like those etched in stone. And those are the ones that maybe for our whole lives we'll have difficulty with. There are certain recurring themes. And so we have to be very gentle and honest when we work with those kind of habit patterns. <coughs> Sometimes we can get really discouraged from our intentions and our, our goals because the, the times in the world are so difficult. And right now, we live in a time in the world where there is a lot of darkness, and it can be discouraging. We can find that in these times, fear box their intention. Miriam Greenspan says not to be afraid of the darkness. Think of the darkness as a rich, fertile soil, its compost from which the unexpected can bloom. And so then, anything is possible when we follow our intentions. Someone asked the Dalai Lama, um, during the recent um, difficulties in Tibet, if he was afraid. And he said, if my intentions are good, I'm not afraid. And I thought about that, but it didn't seem to be working for me. <laughs> and so I needed to do a little more work on fear <laughs> with mindfulness and with compassion. And I also saw that attachment to outcome often got in the way of my intentions. I get very discouraged. And the freer we are from attachment to outcome, the more we can connect to our intention, the more we can connect to it moment to moment. When we're attached to an outcome, it kind of obscures the path. We can't see clearly, and we can't make use of the factors along the path because we're attached to an outcome. Rebecca Solnit says that this she's talking about attachment to outcome. Perfection is the stick with which to beat the possible. It's the premise which makes it easy to give up on our intention. Which is really true. So she says, a better world, yes, a perfect world, never. So it's to be able to allow not knowing. And as Philip was talking about last night, to put our intentions out to the best of, of, of that we can and allow for that possibility. We just don't know if we follow our intentions and our values. We don't know how it will <sighs> unfold in the future. And we don't always know what's best. It can be a surprise. Um, I, um, I went through a lot of years as a physician being angry at drug companies and advertising. And I remember being particularly upset about all the Viagra and the Viagra analogs, all the things about that. And then when I read Rebecca Solnit, she says, you know, Viagra is good for caribou. And I said, what? What does that mean? And, and so she, she writes about how because of the advent of Viagra, they no longer need to kill caribou to get their antlers and various other body parts to solve sexual problems. So Viagra has been very good for caribou. So you just don't know what can be a benefit in the world. So, it's allowing not knowing, being open to possibility, is so helpful with our wise intention. When our intentions get buried in our lives, we need to keep reconnecting. And sometimes we forget that with intention, it's not a one-time thing. It's not like a goal or a New Year's resolution. You have to keep doing it over and over. It's repeatedly inclining the mind, repeatedly inclining the mind. It's recruitment, that's really what it is, the neurons <laughs> that fire together, wire together. It's incremental, so it requires patience to re- reconnect again and again. And it's a dynamic, ongoing process to keep notice, noticing. What am I developing? What am I strengthening? What's growing in my garden? Have a look at what's growing. What have you been watering lately? What's growing in the forest? So it's that willingness of bringing satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom, to the moment of about to, over and over. Things that, ways that help us to connect with intention, are that balance of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and concentration. And we can use those in our lives, not just on retreat. As we have a balance of energy and effort. There's a relaxation that makes it easier to see things. And it's making a commitment to keep connecting with the moment, to keep sustaining our mindfulness, even just in a light way, to know, um, am I present right now? yes or no? What's stopping me from being present? Because it's our presence that brings freedom to us. When we can be fully present in the moment, we get to see the choices. If we're not present, we can't see them. And when we include wise view with, with um, all those other path factors, they all circle around and provide the wise intention that leads to the wise action. So we relax, we pause, we use our wise effort, and we see what's going on. We know what our experience is, moment by moment. And it's just enough effort to connect. It's not difficult to be present, it's just difficult to remember to do it. That's the hard part. So what you might try is to pay attention during the day to all those about-to moments. And you can choose really simple ones, like a cup of tea or reaching for something. And you can choose an issue in your life that you're having a struggle with. What's the about-to moment? Noticing what the choices are. And as we do that, we start to be able to transform our actions because we see that choice point. We're about to do this, but there's a possibility of doing that. The power of intention is so amazing. We're just inclining our minds towards friendliness. <coughs> Even just watching, am I about to be friendly or unfriendly? Inclining our mind towards being aware of our desire. Renunciation. The Buddha said, Bhikkhus, whatever the mind thinks or dwells upon, that will become the inclination. So we keep clarifying our motivation and exploring our intention. So if we simplify it, it's just knowing what's happening moment by moment, and knowing the attitude of the mind that we're doing it with, and always inclining towards what's kind and what's useful. So I'd like to finish with this returning to the Four Noble Truths again. And this is a poem by a Japanese Zen teacher and poet Hakuen. Mere suffering is, but no suffering is found. The deeds are, but no doer of the deed is there. The path is, but no traveller upon it is seen. Nirvana is, but the person who has entered. Sorry, nirvana is, but not the person who has entered. Not knowing how near the truth is, people seek it far away. What a pity. They are like one who in the midst of water cries out in thirst so imploringly. Not knowing how near the truth is, people seek it far away. What a pity. They are like one who in the midst of water cries out in thirst so imploringly. May all of our intentions Bring us happiness, freedom, and peace. Thank you for your in- <laughs> at- attention to intention. <laughs> and we'll be back at nine for our final sit and then chanting.